Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. I'm here tonight with Marcy Wheeler. Uh, Glenn Carl couldn't make it, but we're going to keep on with the national security theme. Marcy, of course, is the leading um, American journalist in investigative journalism of the national security state and what's going on in Washington and around the world with the different uh, attempts at spying on both Americans and foreigners. Hi, Marcy. How are you? You can follow her at empty, um, go to emptywheel.net. That's where she blogs. And uh, follow at emptywheel on Twitter. Both, she's a very prolific tweeter as well as a very, very voluminous blogger, and you should be following her closely. You're uh, telling me I write too much, aren't you? <laughs> even, well, yes, I am. But, <laughs> but the thing is, is that that way that it's even harder for people to quote you and uh, not get credit for it. But everybody follows you of any importance. I just see that Gelman's always hawking on you. Uh, but I wanted to talk about the Freedom Act, because um, the USA Freedom Act, because it's getting really confusing for me, at least, of what exactly they're doing about, uh, in particular, bulk collection, what they mean by bulk collection. Can you just give us a precis on what they voted on? When sure. They well, quick version is USA Freedom, uh, as originally incarnated, was a Sensenbrenner-Leahy vehicle that was actually going to fix not just the um, phone dragnet, but also things like Section 702. And then um, for some jurisdictional reasons, they were going to basically bypass the House Judiciary Committee. The um, Bob Goodlatte uh, and Jim Sensenbrenner and John Conyers and Jerry Nadler all decided they'd let uh, USA Freedom be initially gutted. Um, and at that point, I don't think it was worth passing. And then that bill passed both the Judiciary and the Intelligence Committee. Um, out of the Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers basically said, this only changes the phone dragnet, which, again, I think should have alerted people that the thing was not worth passing. But then the administration came in and said, we want to change X, Y, Z, and 1, 2, and 3 and really gutted the thing. So now um, I would argue that in some ways it's worse than the status quo. In a number of ways it's worth, worse than the status well, quo. Well, the intention was to end bulk collection. By bulk collection we mean when we're speaking English at least, the kind of routine sweeping up of everything. Is that what we mean by bulk collection? Yeah. Um, remind me to go back and challenge your the intention was comment. But the... the um, Everyone who's pushing this bill says it ends bulk collection. But the definition of bulk collection they're using for that claim is the Intelligence Committee definition, which means no discriminator, no selector. So all phone calls is a bulk collection. But all phone calls from area code 202, not a bulk collection, according to them, because 202 serves as a discriminator. All Visa, all credit card bills is a bulk collection, but all Visa bills may well count as not bulk collection because there's a discriminator, which is Visa. So it's, it's a very artificial distinction because I think you and I would say a bulk collection is anything that grabs a chunk of data 
well beyond what the actual targets are, and then sorts once you have the data. Um, and and that's not what this bill prevents. The audience is asking what we mean by collection. We mean capture of conversation, email, text messages, right? Phone records, so who you call, when, what SIM card you're using, what handset you're using, what phone number you're using. That's what we're. That's what we tend to think of. That's what we know will be changed by this bill. Um, they're also probably going to get back into the internet metadata collection program. Um, they we know they they have in the past collected beauty supply records. Uh, there's reason to believe they're collecting firearms purchases. There's reason to believe they're collecting a ton of financial records. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. There's reason to believe they're they're collecting URL searches. Um, it's a whole range of things. I mean, it's very broadly written. Plus, national security letters. Plus, what are called pen registers, which is what they were using to collect internet metadata. Right. And by bulk, what we mean is they're connecting, collecting it indiscriminately, and then what they're doing is using different algorithms for trolling through the data when they get around to doing their retroactive surveillance. By bulk, that's what they mean. But, but frankly, there's very little distinction between them collecting all of Visa's records and them collecting every phone record in the United States, but only one of those counts as bulk collection. But would the union of all Visa searches and all MasterCard searches and all American Express card searches and all Discover searches be everything? It would, but those would be four different searches. All right. So, again, what we really always seem to see is that the laws are being written in such a way that they can be apparently protecting citizen privacy, but obviously are not. Right. But obviously are not. It's not like they're trying all that hard to fool us with this. Well, they fooled, they fooled 95 people. <laughs> yeah, you I mean, had... <laughs> the 90... you know, 95 people voted for Amash Conyers last year and voted for this bill and and, uh, and and I think that's a good faith most of them are good faith group of people but they, you know there should be a lot fewer of them because this bill is so obviously crappy that there should you know there shouldn't be that many people voting for this bill well, but there are could it be they're giving up that they're just I mean because one of the one of the things that we've seen I think the intelligence community do is just keep keep trying to find ways to continue doing what they're doing and making it harder and harder for people to understand what it is they're doing no, I think they haven't done their homework. I mean, the 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 intelligence community has made a concerted, a very successful concerted effort since June to claim that the issues were just two things: the Section 215 phone dragnet, ignore all the other things you can get under Section 215, like financial records, and Section 702, which is what most people know as prison. And for people who haven't been doing their homework, that's all that. That matters. And, and uh, Ruppersberger, I know, was saying internally to staffers that the only thing Americans cared about were the phone was the phone dragnet. The only thing, not just the phone dragnet, because there there are aspects of what is happening under this bill that make it worse, make it significantly worse than the. And, and by worse, you mean more extensive, more invasive of Americans' privacy. More innocence will be swept up. Right, more innocent data will be collected, and then at some point in time in the future, they'll be innocently accused? Well, I can't say they'll be accused. I mean, it's intelligence. They'll just keep collecting and watching, right? right. Um, but, but definitely more kinds of data accessible to the NSA.
So, uh, you know, there are there are significant ways in which this bill is worse than the status quo. Not, I mean, that's the phone dragnet side, but there, I, I, I very sincerely believe that the way the bill is written, um, the NSA will try and restart the internet dragnet, which they shut down in 2000. They ostensibly shut down in 2011. So, I think that you could have. Whereas before the bill passes, you only had your average American only had your phone record examined, your phone calls examined. Collected. Now um, you would have had it collected, and then it would lie there dead in a database unless you're two degrees away from some terrorist. Um, in the new world, you can have your internet metadata collected. Uh, collected. You can have your phone records examined, and you can have your geolocation, your phone right, where geolocation. Right, where your SIM, where your SIM is. Yep. So that, that expands the kinds of... By the internet, uh, you mean they, the URLs you visit? No, no, I mean uh, who you email. Who you email. I think, I think they are and have been getting the, the URLs you visit. I mean, you know, awesome. several people have likened that to reading people's minds, actually, and it's a very interesting analogy. Right. Yeah, um, but I think they've been doing that. So the sequences of URLs, and they just and that's not much data, actually. I mean, the URLs... Right, the and it's not much data, and I think the trick is, one of the reasons the intelligence community is willing to make this shift, which doesn't get talked about enough, is that there are certain technical things, that there are certain things they can't do legally and technically, so long as they're collecting phone data in the United States. Um, and the big one of those is geolocation, but the other big one of those is kind of opening up the smartphone. So if you're only allowed to touch uh, call data records as the NSA, then you're really dealing with old-style phones. You're really dealing only with the phone calls the phones make. Whereas if you have the telecoms do the analysis, then you can play with all the data they have, which starts with geolocation, but may get into everything else your smartphone does, including URLs, including um, email, including you know your Fitbit, what have you. And um, people are completely naked on their on their cell phones. They're essentially trusting their 4G provider with everything. Right, right, and so I mean their so hooker appointments, their their blow schedule, everything. And that's. Exactly, and so if the if the and I don't know if this is true, but yeah, I mean calendars. You raised a really good point. You know, I don't keep a I don't keep all my calendar on my cell phone, but most people do. And if they can connect you to other people through your calendar, like they 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 discover you because of your phone number, but but in the bowels of the analysis that's going well, it's on, not, they not very bowelly. I mean, you know, your ID is your Gmail address. Right, exactly, and they figure out who you're meeting with. Then the word connection becomes really frightening, and that's what that's what they get to do is they move into the telecoms. And and presumably, um, Google and the telecoms are doing this kind of analysis anyway. The tele, yeah, yeah, they both are. Now it's you can what's going to happen? Actually, this is hard to say. Um, clearly, the telecoms are going to have to give over whatever data they have, and so the question is, how much does AT&T? How much can AT&T get from your? I guess it's a, let me, it's a different question. What is AT&T storing? 
I mean, do they process your URLs and toss them, or do they or do they retain them? And if what the feds are it's doing... It's not a storage question because it's ongoing. That's the point, is they get on a daily basis everything that comes up. So it's not a storage question. It's, a, it's, a, it's effectively, you know, in the same way that for content, they have basically created a copy of the circuit. They've taken the fiber and just diverted it and made a copy. Um, we might as well think of, of metadata and everything else that goes through your smartphone is doing the same on this. Fire to do, and they've added things into the law like immunity and like compensation, which means the tell. I, I, I actually think that both Sprint and Verizon were hesitant to do those other things. I think ATT has always been happy to, and I think one of the reasons they're moving it into the telecoms and adding compensation and adding immunity and adding um, requirements about giving the data to the NSA in the form that's most useful is they 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 are basically deputizing. I mean, AT&T always has been, um, but they're deputizing Verizon and Sprint to do the same kind of really invasive analysis that AT&T has been willing to do for the government for years. Right, and um, and that that puts them outside of the reaches of the Freedom Act, for instance. Right, and that's the point. Is is uh, one of the reasons the intelligence community is really excited about moving to the telecoms is because um, either because of technical reasons or because of U.S. v. Jones uh, 2012 Supreme Court ruling or because the FISA court in response to that Supreme Court ruling said we don't want you to get cell location data anymore or all of those things together, the, the NSA is not is, is not comfortable analyzing, collecting and analyzing location data um, on its own. Whereas the um, telecoms do it. They have to do it. If you have a cell phone, they have to be able to get your cell data, so your location data. And so um, this gets the NSA into all that data for free, basically. Right. And um, all right. So, and, and the Freedom Act does nothing to regulate that at all? The Freedom Act is about doing that. The, I mean, that, that's what I, you know, I sort of interjected earlier and you said the reason they're doing this is to X, Y, and Z. The reason they're doing this is to empower that. The reason they're doing this, you know, wipe away from your mind the notion they're doing this to reform the dragnet. Wipe away from your mind they're doing this because of Edward Snowden. He's the convenient excuse. They're doing this to get into the guts of your smartphone um, and therefore be able to do a lot more analysis in the United States. That's the point. That's what this law is supposed to do. So when you say it's weakening, it's gutting is the word you used earlier, and that seems like a more accurate description. Um, Walking yeah, hand in hand with, with America handing over its data stream to their cell phone providers. Right. I mean, it basically puts the NSA in that data stream and deputizes the cell companies to, to, to not just hand it over now, but to play a, a significant analytical role in intelligence. And, this, and part of this is just going to be determined by how much of your data stream comes over the 4G network versus the traditional uh, internet connection you're using. Right. And so the more you use your phone, the more they've got you. And that, well, that's consistent with Snowden not wanting to be anywhere near phones, isn't it? And, and also, yeah, I mean, literally, um, and I'm not an expert on the tech side, but 
you know, as I understand it, if you're sending emails via Wi-Fi, then they're not going to collect that. But if you're sending emails via your 4G, then they right. are going right. to have some visibility into that. Right. You're that, right. That, you're... that, to some degree, counts as a, as a call record. And right. so to some degree, that call counts as something that the NSA can legitimately get. Right. Well, it's also living inside, inside AT&T's uh, domain space. Right. If you're right. if you're riding on the Therefore G network, then you know it's always passing through there. You may end up somewhere else. See, you got me. You got me now thinking about domains. I, I ever since every time I talk to you, I think about well, where are these packets residing? And um, if it's all inside 4G, then it's residing inside the telecoms until you make a request outside. But the request is outside, and the return is inside. So, um, you, you I guess you want to stay away from your phones, big time. Well, yeah. Once this goes through, then. Then apps, I mean, you, you kind of should mix it up anyway. You know, some go through your Wi-Fi and some go through the 4G. But yeah, I mean, that's the point, is that if if everything you do through the 4G network is accessible in this analysis, unbelievably powerful analysis. Right. And we're going to, and of course, everybody syncs their iPhones in their uh, Google accounts anyway, so. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, I want to change the subject. I want to talk about um, – there was an article in the Times today about the National Security Agency spying on Petrobras. We know the U.S. has been trying to penetrate China tele Telecom. We've now got China Telecom um, accusing the U.S. – I'm sorry. We've got China Telecom accusing the U.S. of, of spying on them, the U.S. accusing China Telecom of spying on us. But this spying seems to not involve the military. On our part? On the part of at least what's, for example, the Brazil's accusation is of Petrobras, the uh, oil company, the nationalized oil company. Right, but it's NSA, which is DOD. I'm sorry, say that again? NSA is spying on Petrobras. Right. Um, and NSA is DOD. Right. But it's see. I guess what I'm asking you is what the Chinese are saying is that what the U.S. is doing is exactly what the Chinese are doing. They're conducting espionage into industrial processes and that the United States is doing the same thing to China, claiming it's a national security issue, but what they're looking into is their Internet services. They're looking into their telephone switching equipment and that it's hard to tell the difference between what the U.S. does from what the uh, Chinese do. And that's what, at least that's what the uh, diplomats from Brazil and China are saying. And I'm trying to get a handle on just what it is that the U.S. is doing in terms of spying on corporations around the world. Do you have any sense of whether the UNS NSA is actually doing industrial espionage on the part of... On the part okay, of so what the, what the NSA says it doesn't do, and I believe it doesn't do, is it doesn't go and get engineering records and then hand them off to, say, Ford or GM. So what they say they don't do is take designs, IP, from the Chinese and give it to American companies. And the Chinese say, I'm quoting from the Times article today that I was referring to, the uh, Chinese contend that the U.S. definition is intended to benefit an American economy built around the sanctity of intellectual property belonging to private firms. And in their mind, okay. it also serves to give the NSA the broadest possible rights to intercept phone calls or email from state-owned companies in China or Saudi Arabia. 
with no regard to local laws. Right. I mean, look at it this way. Um, we Do we honestly believe that Lockheed Martin doesn't benefit from NSA's spying? No chance. I mean, obviously it does. It does partly because a lot of what, NSA, what Lockheed Martin does is cybersecurity, but it does also because Lockheed Martin's plain designs are all based on what we learn about everyone else's plane designs. Um, the fact that we consider Lockheed Martin a private company and most of China's big industrial, big defense contractors, public, you know, uh, state-run companies is a fetish. I mean, it, 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 um, the fact that we consider AT&T a private company, but we consider Huawei, China's big telecom, a, 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 a publicly owned company also a fetish. I mean, those are nonsensical distinctions because there is no distance between AT&T and the United States. They just happen to have a stock market ticker, um, but they are, for all intents, a part of the government. Right. The same way with the large banks or, you know, the money center banks are state agencies in important, very many important ways. And uh, if we were doing espionage on the well, we find that out when we look in to see whether or not there's money laundering going on, don't we? We discover that the NSA's power is not used to expose illegal activity by large banks, for instance, even though they must have that data, mustn't they? Right. Well, I mean, let me take a step back. Part yeah, of I'm sorry. Is, I changed. No, 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 no. I, but I want to come back to that. But part of what is what is pushed in this debate, the the New York Times story, is that DOJ indicted five members of China's hacking team, of uh, the PLA's hacking team. What they claim is PLA's hacking team, but I suspect it might technically have as much distance as Lockheed does from the NSA. Um, and they, and at least one of these hackers was known from Mandiant, which is a U.S. security firm that sort of focuses on China. Um, from two reports that Mandiant has done last year, they first kind of named and shamed China, and this year they named five people. And um, this one guy, the ugly gorilla, is named in Mandiant's report and then got indicted this week um, by DOJ. But what's utterly fascinating about the DOJ indictment is that um, with the exception of this solar company that has no business, there's no jurisdiction for them to be victims. Um, uh, the, the indictment was taken in West, out of Pittsburgh. Um, and the solar company has no tie to Pittsburgh and is actually a subsidiary of a German company. So ignore the solar company. But all of the other companies are kind of blue-chip industrial companies. So it's U.S. Steel Alcoa, um, Westinghouse, another industrial company, and uh, um, the steelworkers, a right. union. These are all and, national um, security kind of industries, too. No, no, they're not. No, no, they're not. And that's what's interesting about this indictment. And Westinghouse arguably is because they were selling um, nuclear plants. But everyone else, it's um, it's an, it's industry. It's like grunt level steel industry. And and not only were they not charged, with the exception of Westinghouse and to a lesser degree Alcoa, not only were the were the charges not tied to like technology and IP. But they were actually charged to trade disputes. I mean, the, the, the bulk of what is in that indictment have to do with trade disputes. So, for example, the steel workers and U.S. Steel were going um, to charge China with dumping. 
And as soon as they started talking about charging China with dumping, China uh, spearfished them and started collecting their discussions about this dumping trade dispute that they were going to launch. That is precisely the kind of stuff the United States does in attacking overseas. I mean, you know, we do it. Well, we do it. I mean, one of the things that we found out from WikiLeaks is we do that as that's what the State Department does, actually. Well, this is the name. I mean, State Department, I think, gets into into in more individual companies. So, like, State Department will go out and um, and do a lot for, say, Monsanto. NSA isn't necessarily going to deliver anything back to Monsanto, but the State Department will. Um, but 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 what the NSA does is, anytime there's a trade dispute or a trade negotiation, that's when the NSA goes into high gear and starts stealing stuff. So, for example, there was a story in the New York Times some months ago about a law firm that was representing the Indonesian government, um, and the question was whether whether or not they had gotten spied on, and they probably did. But the but the the goal of that collection program was that Indonesia was having a, this is so fucking nuts, they were having a clove cigarette trade dispute with the United States. And we were having Australia's intelligence, NSA basically, um, steal information from Indonesia to get a leg up in this trade dispute about clove cigarettes. That's why we were doing the collection, that's why we were spying on U.S. lawyers. Um, and yet now DOJ is indicting China, you know, somebody who's supposedly got official ties to China, um, because the steel workers and U.S. Steel are launching a trade dispute on steel dumping. There's there's no distance between those two things. And in fact, you know, trying to get a leg up on a closed cigarette dispute, I think, is even pettier than trying to get a leg up on a on a steel dumping dispute. So, well, it makes it. But, I'm sorry. Well, the, the point is that most of what we indicted is stuff that we do, is stuff that the NSA does and doesn't even claim not to do. I mean, there, you know, Now, isn't this one supposed that, to pipe that, up and say everybody spies and we should do it too and everybody should spy? I mean, that's, this is when I get all confused because the, people will say, yes, well, that's what spies do. Spies do intercept this kind of information, and that's what their job is. That's what the NSA's job is, is to spy on other countries. And, and it's novel. I mean, I, you know, like most people don't know what the heck DOJ is trying to do with this indictment because it just doesn't – there's no way they're going to charge – there's no way they're actually going to prosecute these guys – there's a great downside that, that China's going to start retaliating and, and our relationship with China is going to go south. There is, um, you know, I, I sort of wonder whether there's a trade aspect of it. I mean, one of the things they've done by, by going this industrial, the two things they've done by choosing these people as victims rather than, say, the banks or, say, Lockheed, um, is that, A, there's a lot less classified information to worry about. You know, everyone knows this This is a trade dispute that's already been litigated, so therefore the U.S. Steel doesn't have anything to hide at this point. So that's, there's, whereas Lockheed doesn't want to admit to China how much China got. So that's one reason. But the other reason is that, like, the steel workers are, are sympathetic in a way that the banksters aren't. You know, so they've, they've picked the perfect victims, but by picking the perfect victims, from that perspective, they've picked a crime that we do more than China does. That we at least do routinely. And this is, by the way, this is just 
to pull way back. This is why somebody like Merkel would be spied upon, is in order to get insight into what trade negotiations are going on, among other things. I mean, the reason that it makes sense to spy on politicians is they're the ones, you know, trying to work out their trade deals, trying to work out what's going to be given up. And, you know, it's just that this is, it's that this is being done using the full force of the American National Security Forces. It's something that should give us pause as individual citizens, I think. Yeah, and and uh, and you know I think China is absolutely right when they say that we've invented this small class of economic spying that is supposed to be off limits that all has to do with IP. Um, you know, and our and our IP has gotten so crazy, like the 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 demands that we're making and the the. the well, sort of it seems to be torpedoing the TPP. Actually, I mean, there seems to be no real commitment on the part of the negotiators as well. I mean, they're not going to get it through the Senate, and uh, it's clearly ridiculous. I mean, enforcing the United States' idea of intellectual property is something that's just not going to apply anywhere else. It's just insane, especially copyright. And right, especially and, I, and I think we've just pushed it too far, and that's the thing is, is copyright and IP law generally is only going to work so far as we have the, the might to enforce it, which we're losing, and also only so far as the cost of people to defy us isn't lower than the cost of getting our own IP. And that's never been true. You know, China, it's always been better for China just to steal. But I think we well, have... Well, to, to, not, to not adhere to U.S. intellectual property law. And right. it's not clear they should adhere to U.S. intellectual property law. And we wouldn't have as an early company, you know, we would, you know in, in, the, in the 1900s, we wouldn't have either. And we, no. and we didn't. I mean, yes. one of the reasons that we succeeded is because... We didn't, you know, we took what we got. Right, and it's hard to make a case that India should be, uh, you know, paying paying patent money to to Merck. I mean, I just it's just impossible to make that case. And Dean Baker has made some wonderful arguments about why you wouldn't expect that case to make any sense in uh, in, in a fully worked out economic model. I want you to go back to the banksters just for a minute because oh them yeah because I think it's important to note. The hand-in-glove cooperation has to be going on with the finance people and the NSA. I mean, they have to be seeing money flows um, that in, involve illegality, both the illegality of money moving and the illegality of destination. They have to know, they have to have good data about drug trade, for instance. There's no way that they don't, is there? They have, I'm sure they do. And we know, for example, that not only is the government getting SWIFT data, which is the kind of above-board international transfers, but they're also stealing data from SWIFT outside of what they're supposed to be allowed to get. So they're doing the same thing that they do with Google, is they're getting above-board and below-board. But um, And I also suspect, um, this is just a crazy theory that I have, but um, I, I don't know if you remember the series of... Um, Basically, somebody leaked the records from a British Virgin Islands trade uh, tax haven about six months ago, and there were a long there were a series of every country talking about who was storing their money in BVI. It wasn't the only one, but it was mostly BVI. Um, and all of that data, all of it, and I've never seen anything outside of that, looked like it could have been minimized by the NSA. I mean, there was never the only um, quote-unquote Americans that were swept up in that were people like Denise Rich, who had who's given up her U.S. citizenship, so therefore would not fall under minimization. So that's an example where I actually think it's possible that the NSA stole that data 
and leaked it to somebody in a WikiLeaks kind of operation to shut down a, ta a competing tax haven to the United States. So I think that that's the kind of thing that the NSA might do. Um, but the NSA, the, the U.S. government thinks of big banks, including people like HSBC, although, you know, so we indicted, was it Swiss Bank? Uh, we indicted a Swiss Bank this week, right? Um, we, we won't indict J.P. Morgan Chase, even though they do everything that every other bank does. Um, and instead of indicting these banks, including HSBC, which is a British bank, is we sort of deputize them. And we say, um, we, you know, you break more laws than any other financial entity, but if you tell us everything you know, um, then we'll look the other way while you break more laws. And, and I think that's a lot of what goes on is that... that, that uh, but what we're not getting is, I mean, the, the deal we're supposed to be getting is then we prosecute the guy as one step up, right? But they're, we're not doing that either. No, it's one step down. I mean, I know. I mean, that's my point. Yeah. I mean, there is no one step up from J.P. Morgan. Right. Um, the question from the audience, wouldn't you agree that this is, this is a, I was piping up with this, but we'll do it again. Wouldn't you agree that being at, that, I'm sorry, wouldn't you agree that everyone engages in cyber warfare that also probably engages in lawfare? That is, this is something that all states practice. And, and Absolutely. That's, yeah. No, all states practice it, but um, we are more vulnerable than, than any other country, um, partly because we are a target in a way that even Germany isn't as lucrative a target, even though they're probably significantly vulnerable. But, I, you know, I think, I think we're probably more vulnerable than Germany just because our, our infrastructure is, is more... Uh, rickety than, than Germany's. Um, and, and we, I mean, we frankly have better hackers still than any other country. You know, that's not something that Keith Alexander wants to tell you, but we still do this better. I mean, most countries wouldn't have been able to pull off Stuxnet. I think Israel probably is batting way above its weight class on that level, and I think that is interesting. It may get really interesting as we go forward, but um, but Yes, everyone engages in cyber war. Yes, the U.S. is trying to define cyber war such that our cyber war is legal and China's is not. Um, it, yes, it is a real threat. I mean, I don't want to diminish the fact that... Uh, no, what, what do you yeah. mean it's a real threat? A real threat to whom? Well, I mean, I think they could bring down the grid. And if they bring down the grid, there will be massive panic and people won't have enough to eat. And So you, by cyber war, you don't mean... Uh, industrial commercial espionage. You mean the use of um, in, the use of holes, insecurities in the U.S. Uh, critical infrastructure could be taken down. If I'm China or Russia or probably France and Israel, I'm going to make sure I know how to do that because that is not quite a nuclear bomb against the United States, but that you know you get into. Deterrent. Well, it's a more credible threat. It's a more credible threat than a nuke is actually. Yeah, and, and, and one that you could use and one that would, you know, um, and, you know, if you're China, there may come a day when you actually do want to use it because the United States has become less useful. So, yeah, everyone engages in cyber warfare, and I think the scenario I just laid out... You mean, okay, now again, I'm going to be picky. When you say engages in cyber warfare, works out ways in which they can be prepared to attack infrastructure, actually make a military attack on the United States, not uh, steal, steal Apple, Apple 
design methodologies or um, trade secret negotiation data, but actually be able to shut down um, shut down a hydropower, hydroelectric power plant or shut down um, the grid processing or throttle the old internet. You know, all those things are things that you think are, fall under cyber warfare that they're trying to inf interfere directly with the national economy using um, hacker techniques. That's what you mean by it. That's the outside possibility, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's, but if you're China, I mean... Now, th but th that, stop. I gotta, this, because this is just the lead into my million-dollar question here. So why, in heaven's name, is the NSA hoarding zero days? Why in heaven's name did they not know? Why aren't they working as hard as they can to make our systems secure from that kind of threat? Why are the they preserving in, in, um, ex potential exploits? I'm not sure I am certain about it. Because, I mean, I, you know, and I think some people at the NSA probably are working on a different mindset than others. I think that um, part of it is because they want to be omniscient. And if you want to know everything, then you have to collect on a grand scale rather than on a particularized scale. So if they wanted to just do particularized spying, then they'd probably still use zero days, but they would be a lot less intrusive zero days. Um I think that um, partly it's this kind of juvenile response that says if China can use zero days, then so shall we, um, without, without recognition of the fact that we're a lot more vulnerable than they are. And then, you know, I think part of it is that there's uh, – and Alan and I, when we were on the show, we, we kind of had this conversation. There's no institutional – there's no bureaucratic competition for security. I mean, there's no def there is no strong defender within the bureaucracy to defend internet security as distinct from internet offense. If that makes and, sense. And so you're saying that the mission of being able to gather everything, collect everything, as, as Glenn so well quotes when he's going through uh, some of the slideshows, when he just says, when he, when he quotes in internal NSA documents saying we're going to collect everything, everywhere, every time, every place, um, that mission overrides the mission of keeping our our industrial sources safe? Yeah. That would but, seem... But, okay. but, but it makes sense because that's the way we think. I mean, that's the way... I mean, we were talking about climate change earlier. It's like when, when the national security establishment talks about climate change, it's not to say, oh my gosh, we lost another Alabama town this week. It's to say climate change is going to create more terrorists. And so there's, there's this sense of I versus them from a national security perspective um, that breeds that, you know, and that I think is consistent across most applications in, in, in the national security context. And so it's very easy to say how, you know, the same thing that says I'm not going to worry about those Alabama towns going up in smoke to say I'm not going to worry that my hoarding has led to 70 million people having their identities taken from Target. Right. Ah, and in fact, yes, that is one of the really actual outcomes, perhaps, of them preserving these zero days is Target is exposed in ways they wouldn't be if they were publicizing them. But, you see, and this is the other thing that confuses me because it's in... As you say, the U.S. Is, a, is the target. It's in the U.S.'s interest to make these systems as secure as possible and to create 
you know, to do things like fund the SSL people rather than have them living on uh, bottle caps and, uh, and, and whatever else they can put together to keep themselves going. On the other hand, it's good that they're not funding the SSL people because if they did, they'd put in back doors. You know, and, and that, that, that problem really disturbs me is that my first thought was, well, why don't we have better people um, adequately resourced protecting these key elements like SSL? And then I say, well, because if they do, then they'll break it. Right. There was a really interesting development this week, um, NIST. So uh, Alan Grayson decided to, because he's on the Commerce Committee, he decided to make it so that NIST did not have to consult. Right now, NIST has to consult with NSA on any kind of um, crypto standard. And that's what led to some weaker standards. And so Grayson's like, "Let's let's make it so you don't have to. I mean, you still can, but you don't have to. And the NIST people weren't very crazy about that because they like having the cover of having to consult with NSA. And they're like, well, NSA is the, you know, NSA is the experts. But, right, if you consult with NSA, then they're either overtly or covertly going to try and uh, nudge the standard to where they want it to be. And so, I mean, that's, that's the problem is that we don't use structures you know, we don't use, I mean, Dick Cheney, I think, is the only one who does this well in this country. We don't use bureaucratic structures to feed the outcomes we necessarily want. And this is a perfect example where we will not create an institutional champion for security that is strong enough to fight back against the offensive uh Well, but the point, is not, the point is not to fight back. I mean, it would seem to be that it's in our interest to not have Target be vulnerable. It's in our interest to reduce vulnerabilities, except that it impedes on the ability of the intelligence services to work on very small groups of people they consider particularly dangerous. I mean, that has to be the that has to be the rationale that we're willing to have Target, you know, lose, you know, two weeks worth of sales essentially, in order to make it possible for us to spy on a Yemeni. Right? Yeah, Tarjay is not a good example because that was really their own fault. But, yeah, but let's assume that, say, the Apple vulnerability was not accidental. And so you've got lots of vulnerability from Apple. You know, that's just an example. But we don't know what the outcome of that was just because um, because Apple didn't come forward. Apple, you know, is not being held liable for whatever happened to their customers in that. But But – but there is a scenario, yeah, where where the government is going to leave open, leave everyone vulnerable. Um, and also, I mean, the 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 heart bleed was one of the most interesting things about that was the disclosure process to that. So, um, you know, right, you actually believed them. <laughs> well, oh, let's ignore that for the moment. But like Google found it and told one other entity and started telling other internet companies, but not the NSA. And then announced it, and then there was there was more window than optimally you would have in which everyone knew it existed, so people could start you know new people could start exploiting it and um and that's one of the things that distrust feeds and um and Google didn't go to the n s a or at least as far as we know did not go to the n s a right away and that leads me to this post that I thought is one of the best posts you've written in a while, the source of intelligence 
legitimacy problem. You start off by saying Ben Wittes went to a secret meeting on intelligence challenges and came away with the realization that as we become more reliant on intelligence, the public becomes more skeptical. Um, the I'm not sure, and, this, and we're talking about the same thing, but I'm not sure what it is that our intelligence agencies are trying to do, what their missions are at this point. And you say here that the Wittes says the paradox is technology, the core reason the American threat environment is so complicated as far as technology, but that's not so. I mean, I think that the reason that people are losing faith is the, as you say, systemic failure. For instance, well, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't quite so succinct. If you want to call this a systemic failure, then I'll well, sound smarter than I was. No, you said the government trumped up a war on false intelligence. Well, obviously. I mean, look, um, you know, people like Wittes are never going to start from Iraq. Um, and I don't think, I think there are, there are actually more fundamental failures that cause the intelligence community to lose credibility now than Iraq. But I think Iraq is always in the background, Right. Um, and you can point, like, when the history of the great United States is told, Iraq will be this signature moment where, you know, we trumped up a war, lost the war, spent all our treasure, and, you know, that, that's probably the point where the United States started precipitously losing its power. And so, of course... Well, one of the shocking things about it was that rather than as George H.W. Bush realized that you would demonstrate that the United States couldn't do some things, we, we chose to demonstrate to the world that, that the military force was not adequate to do some fairly, well, it was not adequate to, to restructure an entire nation like that. It just right, not, n- not even, I mean, I think the, the military force was perfectly adequate. The governance was inadequate. And that's not surprising because we can't govern here either. I mean, our bridges here are in, they're in better shape than Iraq's, but only because we didn't spend as much money here. So they were more competently built. <laughs> That's true. Um, you also say the government chooses to apply intelligence to problems like, as we were talking about earlier, uh, yeah. we were talking about defense contractors and the banksters, but not to others. And now, climate change is another one of those. I mean, you know, if we, I, I say this every time I'm here, Jay, it's like if we declared Fat Al Gore a terrorist, Fat Al Gore being my personification of climate change, then we might begin to solve it because um, you would have a villain and you would have a means to make money off of the problem. And all of a sudden, you know, the the American ingenuity would start solving the problem or or corporate, you know, corporate governance ingenuity. But we don't, we don't, we don't do that. And we don't, um, we don't try and find the bankers who are devastating our communities using this intelligence. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't do a lot of that. And that is, I think, one of the reasons it's going to be hard for the intelligence community to be credible because the enemies they've defined definitely are the enemies that Americans get themselves worked up for. I mean, it's, you know, it's the two minutes of hate or what have you. But they're, but they're not the enemies that will solve the problems of, of uh, average Americans. So Americans may believe that al-Qaeda is the worst threat against them, even though, you know, objectively they're not, not even close. But, uh, but even if we were to, to make a dent in al-Qaeda, that wouldn't fix 
the problems that most Americans are are struggling with. Right, and that, well, but that has to do with um, the well, that has to do with things that are the intelligence services don't even try. Well, no, the intelligence services are making it worse. It's not really no longer serves the average person interest, as you say, but at times serves interests very much opposed to the average person, and that's serving the banksters, and that's serving the oil companies rather than serving the uh, unemployed worker in Youngstown. Look, you know, so Stephen Kinzer has the book out on the Dulles Brothers, right? And um, and most of much of that was known already, although he brings it together into into one story to kind of tell the story of these two brothers who, you know, state and CIA, but also Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, the ties between the elite national security decisions the United States made for a long period and for a period where we didn't, I mean, where we now know that we were launching coups, although, um, so so what's going to happen in 30 years' time, in 50 years' time, will we then discover that, that John Brennan was launching just as many coups as Alan Dulles? Will we discover that um, Tim Geithner was just as corrupt as Alan Dulles in, in choosing to, to serve his Wall Street and his intel. I mean, because Treasury is a, Treasury is now part of the intelligence community, and they're they're an important part of the intelligence community. Um, and they're the ones who they're they're one of the two entities that get to declare who's a terrorist and who's not, and get to declare. I mean, you know, we're going to start imposing sanctions on China for hacking us now. That's kind of nonsensical. But but regardless, well, they're going to de- they're going to define trying to engage in the activity that we engage in as something that requires sanctions. And we don't have a TPP to turn to to justify it. Right. I mean, it's just, it's sort of funny. But the but the point being that, you know, so if, if uh, Treasury is a key part of the intelligence community, which it is now, um, then then what are the tales, not tales, they're true. What are, what are the histories that we're going to be seeing in the same way that we see Stephen Kinzer's book of this, the, you know the degree to which the interests of the of Wall Street and national security are one and the same. You know we take out entire governments um, because Wall Street wants them taken out because you know the, the Dulles brothers have huge investments in um, in a banana company. It was different in Walter Riston's day. No, it's not different. Do you think? No, I don't. I think it's very much the same. Yeah, and so, and so, I guess that's my point. Is like we're too close to it today to even recognize how many coups the CIA is involved in. We're definitely too close to it today to understand precisely what the relationship between Treasury and Wall Street and the CIA is. But I guarantee you, there is one. Right. The last thing you say is something that's been on my mind ever since I read um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's book, Secrecy. Um, one of the reasons it's losing le- legitimacy is because it's excessive secrecy punctuated by exposure that shows the secrets really aren't all that secret. And in fact, are kept secret largely because people might object. This hypocrisy is making them look, well, frankly, like idiots. Yeah, and um, and this is the only... Point, I'm sympathetic to Wittes' claim of technology is because it makes it a lot, you know, in the in the age of WikiLeaks, in the age of Edward Snowden, it's a lot easier to prove the hypocrisy of the government in massive scale. Um, but but you know, the, we it, it was always fairly easy before, just because the you know Americans are sloppy that way. But but the point being that um, well, and security is hard. It really is. I mean, it yeah, really is hard. hard to keep secrets. Yeah. And it's really hard to only keep things that really need to be secret, secret. And yeah. I think Americans are particularly bad at it. And we have 1.5 people with 
1.5 million people with clearance, 800, right? So, so, you know, a half percent of the country's population has clearance, and they're part of this elite crowd. And then there's the rest of the country, which doesn't have clearance. And, you know, that separation is every bit as dangerous and stark as the separation between the, what is it, 3% who serve in the military and the rest of the world, the rest of the country, right? Um, and, and obviously there's a huge overlap there, but... but um, and within yeah. that, there are concentric circles of people who know they think they know more than the people who don't have the clearances but might decide them. Um, I'm sorry. And that buys loyalty. That buys silence from right. some of them. Right. Well, but it's worse when they're contractors, as it turns out. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, and this is something that isn't really answerable, but that means that you can answer it really well. Um, you, we keep using the phrases the intelligence community or the military intelligence community or the or the elite rule. Who's running this thing? I mean, there are times it feels like the president is taking orders or um, fulfilling pri- previous um, agreements the presidency has made with the intelligence services. Who's in charge? I think it's definitely true that the... Uh, I didn't see that movie, so I can't say uh, tail wagging the dog, but you know that the, intelli- the intelligence community is a bureaucracy that doesn't change every four or eight years, Right. These people have had their career track. John Brennan, CIA director, was played a very key role in Dick Cheney's illegal wiretapping program. Um, and yet he is perceived today as a key member of Obama's inner circle, national security inner circle. But he's not. He's, he's, he is a key member of the intelligence community and a very adept one. And so, you know, John Brennan's, John Brennan is much more, he knows how to, push Obama's buttons. He knows very early on the CIA made Obama vulnerable by getting him to kill civilians with drone strikes. And once you've done that, there is sort of this um, mutual dependence or mutual complicity that I think makes it a lot easier for the intelligence community to tell presidents what to do. Or to tell presidents that they've got the experience and knowledge the president didn't have and you go through that same a different version of Ellsberg's story about getting access to the secrets that you didn't know before. And so you're saying the deep state in some way um, uses information and institutional knowledge to bring in the complicity each president. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think you said one thing, which is that the the expertise resides in the intel, in the deep state, deep state, and I agree with that. But I would go further and I would say that, um, not, you know, irrespective of things like bribery, which I'm sure go on, you know, like let's see who the president is sleeping with on the side and let's try and use that to coerce him to do X, Y, and Z. Blackmail rather than bribery. Yeah, pretend that doesn't go on. Right. Irrespective of that, there still is this uh, structure of complicity. So um, the president has... Uh, a finding which authorizes all this covert operation, all of which is illegal. Um, it, uh, that's what that's what. That's only legal because of the president's finding. Right. So that's what authorized torture. That's what authorizes drone strikes. Those are the two big ones. And once you've authorized torture and drone strikes, then the intelligence community has something on you. Right. You've poisoned your own tree. 
And that is, at, at a fundamental level, one of the relationships that drives the deep state. Oh, and that's why they want their findings so badly. Because it's something that's always weirded me out is the CIA refuses to act without a finding. And, right, yeah. and that's because they want, they, want, they want those hands dirty. And, and that, frankly, I think is one of the things that goes, I mean, I think that is the actual story behind the torture videotapes, is that uh, the White House wanted videotapes to make sure they had the torturers complicit, but the torturers wanted to get rid of it. You know, that's, that's the only plausible excuse for why David Addington said you have to keep the torture tapes, and that is, that was his control over the torturers, and and yeah, that's precisely what happens. Is that the you know ne- George Bush authorized torture, and if the torturers really wanted to, they could get him into the Hague pretty quickly. Right. Well, Cheney still won't travel. I actually believe that Haney won't travel, and Cheney won't travel because he could end up in the Hague. Yep. Um, all right. Um, I think that's what I got. Do you get anything I should have asked you? No, I ah. answered everything. How's Malenolab? Ah, uh, he's he is getting older, but he's he he likes this weather. It's still it probably is where you are, but it's, it's still, still cool. Like, it's still been it's nice. Still cool. So. Still spring. And um, how is the how is the Michigan agricultural season looking? Pretty bad. I'm not sure. I, I we had a bit of a frost last week, but I I haven't heard yet that it killed any crops. So it looks. Well, tell me when the cherries come in. All right. Well, well, no. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Short Notice, Marcy. And I really appreciate that last bit of analysis because I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. And it's really hard to because nobody actually speaks very clearly. Um, and you're the one who, who keeps finding what they've actually said on the record. So we really appreciate that. So, folks, remember, it's emptywheel.net and also Empty Wheel on Twitter. Thanks, Marcy. We'll see you next time. Take care, Jay. Bye-bye.